Well, good morning and happy new year to everybody. Good to see all of you today. You know, in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and her friends travel to the Emerald City searching in for the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. And they hope that the wizard can use this great power to get Dorothy home to Kansas, as well as give the scarecrow a brain, the tin man a heart, and the cowardly lion courage. But when they finally arrive at the Emerald City and they pull back the curtain, they discovered that the wizard isn't anything like they've been led to believe. When they look behind the curtain, they see that the Wizard of Oz is just a con man from Omaha who uses tricks and props to create the illusion of power. We use the phrase behind the curtain sometimes to describe what happens when we see the inner workings of something. And like Dorothy and her friends, we're sometimes surprised by what we find behind the curtain. Today is the start of the season of Epiphany, the season in the church calendar between Christmas and Lent. And the season of Epiphany is all about looking behind the curtain so we can see Jesus as he really is. Epiphany invites us to get caught up in Christ's glory. Not to be disappointed as Dorothy <clears throat> and her friends were. We're calling this year's Epiphany series, Jesus Revelation, because we're going to spend the six weeks of Epiphany seeing how the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, pulls back the curtain to show us Jesus. Part of our mission statement here at Glenkirk is to be a worshiping community. We see that word worship on the wall every time we come into the sanctuary together each Sunday. We are a worshiping community when we receive teaching from our pastors, when we praise God with music, when we pray together, when we celebrate sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper together. And our prayer is that Jesus' revelation will help us see Christ's glory with greater clarity that we might become an even more passionate worshiping community. So today I'm going to give a brief overview of the book of Revelation, and then we're going to see three ways the first chapter of Revelation reveals Christ's glory to us. So if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, 
Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. You can be seated. Just hearing these words, you immediately know that we're dealing with a very different kind of writing style than what we find in other parts of the Bible. After all, how do you turn to see a voice? You hear a voice. And what are we to make of these images like golden lampstands? Thanks. Golden lampstands and white hair like wool and stars and keys to death and Hades. And why is Jesus described as having white hair like wool and a sword coming out of his mouth? Is this literally what Jesus looks like? Or are these symbolic of other things about Jesus? And because Revelation is so different, it's been controversial at times. The 16th century reformer John Calvin preached sermons and wrote books on every other book of the New Testament except for Revelation. And yet today, some people can't get enough of the book of Revelation. People write novels and make movies like the Left Behind series based on their interpretation of Revelation. In fact, in the, in the religious book-selling industry, no other books make more money than books about Revelation. But what a lot of people don't know is that the book of Revelation is a specific kind of literature called apocalypse. In fact, in the original Greek, the very first word of chapter 1, verse 1, is the Greek noun apocalypsis. The opening words are the revelation or the apocalypsis of Jesus. Now, we associate an apocalypse with some catastrophe that leads to the end of the world as we know it. We, we look at TV shows like The Walking Dead and The Last of Us as apocalyptic shows. But that's not at all what this word meant back when the book of Revelation was written. The, the word apocalypsis simply means an unveiling, pulling back the curtain, a revealing an apocalypse pulls back the curtain to reveal what's been hidden on the other side of that curtain. Dorothy and her friends had an apocalypse when they pulled back the curtain in the Emerald City to see the wizard. What you see on the other side of the curtain is an apocalypse, a revelation. The book of Revelation is an apocalypse that was revealed to the apostle John. And when the curtain was pulled back, what John saw was wild. Uh, images of beasts and monsters, dragons and falling stars, angels and demons, temples and plagues. And these images seem strange to us today, but they were actually very common in ancient apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic writing would use wild images to spark people's imagination to see what was beyond the curtain. Revelation is like a picture book to help us see with our imagination what God says is beyond the curtain of time and space to see reality as it truly is. So Revelation starts with this vision in chapter 1. 
And as part of this initial vision in chapter one, uh, Jesus dictates letters to seven different churches in chapters two and three. Chapters four through 22 are six more visions, each more detailed than the previous one. And chapters 19 through 23 of Revelation are especially about the future second coming of Jesus and what comes after. But we can't lose sight of the fact that Revelation is first and foremost an apocalypse of Jesus, an unveiling of pulling back the curtain to show us Jesus. In fact, remember that it's not the book of Revelations, plural, It's the book of Revelation, singular, pulling back the curtain so we can have a revelation of Jesus even more clearly. Now, if I had another two hours, there's a lot more I could say about Revelation, but because I don't, um, I've written an article called Approaching Revelation, posted it on our website. You can go to glenkirkchurch.org, click the banner, the Jesus Revelation, and you'll find a link to that article. It's about nine pages in length. And there you can read four primary different ways Christians approach Revelation, how I approach it, um, the background and structure of Revelation, and a reading list to study further if you want to learn more. But we start by remembering, first and foremost, that this is a revelation of Christ's glory. Now, in the late first century, when John experienced this vision, the Christian church was a tiny minority in the massive Roman Empire. The Roman government was persecuting the church because Christians would refuse to acknowledge the Roman emperor's lordship. The Roman emperor at this time was a guy named Domitian, and Domitian had issued orders to destroy the church by especially targeting leaders in the church. And this is why Domitian ordered that John the one who received this vision, be sent to into exile on the island of Patmos to keep him from leading the churches that he was involved in leading. At this time, Christians were discouraged and exhausted. By all outward appearances, imperial Rome was crushing this tiny movement of the Christian church. But as Dorothy and her friends learned in The Wizard of Oz, Things are not always as they appear. In this vision, God pulls back the curtain to show John and to show us what's real and what's true. Now, to better understand the verses I read, we actually have to go back a few centuries to another vision that was revealed to the prophet Daniel centuries earlier. So let me read out of Daniel 7, beginning in verse 9. Daniel says, as I looked in Daniel's vision, Daniel 7, verse 9, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was a was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And then skipping to verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority 
glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Can you see how Daniel's vision is in the background of what John sees, an ancient one with white hair and blazing eyes, a a second figure appearing, one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. You get the idea. So let's consider what John's vision in Revelation says. In verse 12, John sees seven golden lampstands. Technically, it's probably seven lamps on a single stand, what we sometimes call a Jewish menorah. Menorah would hold different branches, seven different branches. And in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah, God pictures the nation of Israel as a seven-branched golden menorah or lampstand, just like the one John sees in this vision. In Zechariah, that golden lampstand represented all of Israel. And later in this chapter, in verse 20 of chapter 1, Jesus says the seven lamps represent the seven churches that Jesus is going to send letters to in chapters 2 and 3. Each lamp represented a congregation. But most Bible scholars don't think that this lampstand with seven lamps is limited only to those seven congregations. You see, all the numbers in Revelation have theological significance, and none more than the number seven. The number seven occurs 54 different times in the book of Revelation, most of any number. And consistently in Revelation, the number seven consistently refers to totality or completeness. And just as the golden lampstand in Zechariah represented all of Israel in its totality, I think the seven lamps or seven lampstands represent the entire Christian church throughout time, and around the world. And that would mean that we here at Glenkirk, 2,000 years later, are part of the lampstands that John sees in this vision. This vision includes us today. Now, what's a little bit more debatable is the meeting of the seven stars that Jesus is holding in verse 16. Later in this chapter, in in verse 20, again, these seven stars are identified as the seven angels of the seven churches. And so the stars represent angels, and some take that to mean that every congregation has its own guardian angel. That's a pretty cool idea. But later in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus holds some of the angels personally responsible for the problems happening within the congregations they represent. So that doesn't sound like a guardian angel. In the Bible, the word angel can sometimes refer to a human messenger. And one of the most ancient interpretations of the seven stars, the seven angels, is that they represent the spiritual leaders of each congregation. And that would explain why Jesus holds these angels, these stars responsible for the spiritual health of the congregations that they represent. And if that's the case, for us, the stars would be our leaders here at Glenkirk, our elders and pastors and deacons held in Jesus's hand. 
So this initial vision pulls back the curtain to reveal Jesus standing in his church around the world and throughout time, holding the leaders of each congregation in his hand. Now let's consider how this vision pulls back the curtain to show us Jesus. This vision reveals at least three aspects of Christ's glory. The the white hair and the blazing eyes and the title son of man and the feet like bronze reveal Jesus as our king. In fact, John's vision here actually combines the two figures we read about in Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man into a single person. In Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days represents God and the Son of Man represents the coming Messiah, the coming King who would rule over all the earth. And here in John's vision, Jesus is both. He is both fully God and fully human. He is revealed as the divine King. The robe with the golden sash in verse 13 reveals Jesus as a priest. Back then, the Jewish high priest would wear a robe with a golden sash across it whenever the priest would offer sacrifices in the temple. Now, a priest is a kind of go-between, between God and people. Priests offered sacrifices on behalf of God's people so their sins could be forgiven. But in John's vision, in verse 18, Jesus refers to himself as the living one who was once dead and who is now alive forever. This priest wearing the golden sash has been raised to life again after death. As we'll see in chapter five next week, develops this even further by calling Jesus the lamb that was slain. Jesus is both the priest who made the offering and the offering itself, the sacrifice itself. Jesus is a sacrificial priest. And finally, the the voice of rushing waters and the sword coming out of his mouth reveals Jesus as a prophet. The focus there is on Jesus's words. If the priest represented people to God by offering sacrifices, the prophet would represent God to people by speaking God's words to them. John sees Jesus as a truth-speaking prophet. When the curtain is pulled back in this initial vision, Jesus is revealed as our divine king, our sacrificial priest, and our truth revealing prophet. This is Jesus in his glory. And in that glory, he stands in his church. He's not sleeping. He's not resting. He's not sitting. He's standing. He's active in our worship even now as our king, our priest, and our prophet. He holds our leaders safe and secure in his hand. This is the reality that is behind the curtain whenever we gather to worship together. If we have the eyes of faith, the eyes of epiphany, Now, let's consider what this might mean for us. First, because Jesus is our divine king, we can trust Jesus. We can trust him. 
In John's time, the Roman emperor Domitian claimed to be the divine king. The Roman government insisted that this Caesar, the emperor Domitian, was lord, and he appeared to have all the power. He was in charge of the largest government on earth at the time. He directed the most prosperous economy. He commanded the ancient world's most powerful military. Adoring fans would go to temples dedicated to him to worship and praise the emperor Domitian. But God pulls back the curtain to show us that it's Jesus, not Domitian or anyone else, who's really the divine king. Despite outward appearances, Domitian was no more the king than the Wizard of Oz was great and powerful. For us, 2,000 years later, we barely remember Domitian, but we're still talking about Jesus, aren't we? Nothing falls outside of our king's rule. Our king is never caught off guard by breaking news. Our king never wonders what's going to happen next. Our king may be grieved or angered by what people do, but he never wrings his hand and says, now what? Because no matter what comes our way, we can trust our king. Nothing can derail his kingdom. Not a global plant pandemic, not a church split, not political division or economic downturn or elections or wars. Nothing can derail our king's sovereignty over his church and over his world. And when we worship together and we peek behind the curtain, we will learn to trust Jesus because we will see him in his glory as our king. Second, because Jesus is our sacrificial priest, he is for us. He is for us. The whole world seemed against the early church. Baylor historian Rodney Stark says at this time, the Christian church was less than 1% of the Roman population. Roman society seemed rigged against the early church. Many of Jesus' early disciples were killed. John had been sent into exile. And yet behind the curtain, John sees that Jesus is for them. And he is for us as well. He gave his life. He was dead and is alive again. He holds the keys. And he stands on our behalf in the presence of our Father, as our advocate, our defender, our mediator. He is for us. He is for you because he is our sacrificial priest. And in the words of Romans, if he is for us, who could stand against us? Him being for us is enough. Whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we'll be doing in a few minutes, we remember Jesus as our sacrificial priest. We eat the bread and drink from the cup because he is the living one who died and offered himself as the sacrifice, as the lamb of God for our sins, but rose from the dead. And taking the bread and drinking the cup in faith nourish us with assurance that our sins are forgiven, that Jesus is for us no matter what we've done and no matter what the future holds. 
And lastly, since Jesus is our truth-revealing prophet, we are accountable to Jesus. We are accountable to him. He stands among the lampstands because the church belongs to him. They're his lamps. Jesus upholds each congregation's leadership in his hand because his leaders belong to him. Glenkirk does not belong to us. Let me say it again. Glenkirk does not belong to us. Doesn't belong to our members or to our elders or to me or to our other pastors. It doesn't belong to our denomination eco. It belongs to Jesus. And whenever we start acting like Glenn Kirk is ours, we need to look behind the curtain once again to see that it's his. Jesus' words here are pictured as a double-edged sword. And one ancient interpretation of the double-edged sword is that one edge symbolizes the Old Testament and the other edge symbolizes the New Testament. And I'm not sure what this, that's what this vision intends, but it certainly is a provocative idea because Jesus speaks to us through the Bible, through the scriptures. And in chapter 2, Jesus will tell the church in Ephesus that they have strayed so far from him that if they don't change soon, he will remove their lamp from the lampstand. When a congregation stops responding to the words of Jesus, Jesus eventually removes their lamp. Their flame is extinguished. I wonder how many congregations have lost their lamp and never noticed. They just kept on going, business as usual. We will be accountable to Jesus as our truth-revealing prophet. Our lamp will only burn as bright as we honor the truth of his words, the word that comes from the mouth of our prophet. Our lamp will only burn bright as our leaders lead in accordance with his words, his teachings, and as we follow those leaders, because Jesus is our prophet. In the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and her friends were disappointed when they looked behind the curtain. But when God pulls back the curtain for John, he's overwhelmed. Not by the Roman Empire, not by the Emperor Domitian, but by Jesus. John falls to his face in fear as he has an apocalypse of Jesus, an unveiling of Christ's glory. It was an epiphany moment for John as he sees Jesus in his church as king, priest, and prophet. This vision should unsettle us as much as it encourages us. Because what we see behind the curtain is that Jesus is not someone we can contain or control or co-opt for our own agenda. The vision assures us that we are deeply loved and that our lives and our congregation is safe in the hands of our King but it also confronts us with the reality that we will be accountable to Jesus for how we steward this lamp we've been given. When we worship together, we receive assurance that we can trust our future to Jesus as our King. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we encounter Christ as our priest, knowing the comfort of our sins being forgiven. But as we worship and we encounter his words, 
we experience Jesus as our prophet who will hold us accountable to living those words. And so we worship in awe as well as intimacy as we encounter Jesus as king, priest, and prophet. May that be our epiphany today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words and this vision. And we thank you that it wasn't just for people back then, and it's not just for people in the future, that it's for us today on this first Sunday of 2024. It's for us here at Glenkirk that Jesus stands among us if we have the eyes to see. Father, thank you that you are sovereign and in control. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.